This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I am very happy to be here as part of tonight's program. And in our first session, I would like to familiarize you with some of the breast imaging that is performed at UCSF. And I'd like to briefly discuss some of the controversies we face when screening for breast cancer. This question reminds us why UCSF breast imaging is so committed to rigorous annual screening mammography. Can we, as breast imagers, save 100,000 extra lives? And the answer is yes. And it is because of this tremendous life-saving capacity that UCSF breast imaging follows the American College of Radiology recommendations for annual screening mammography beginning at age 40. To paraphrase Sun Tzu, let us not underestimate our foe. We hear a lot about breast cancer in the media, and sometimes I worry we become a little bit numb, a little bit indifferent to it. But when we look at 2017 statistics, they tell us that about 12% of American women will have this diagnosis in their lifetime. Over 250,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer will be diagnosed this year and over 40,000 American women will die from breast cancer this year. So this remains a major health issue. The goal of screening mammography is to find these breast cancers early in individual women with the hopes of decreasing their chances of dying from breast cancer and to provide them with better treatment options. With that, let's look at some of the basic imaging of the breast we perform at UCSF. And we should note that here, all breast imaging studies are read by subspecialized breast imagers, so only people specifically trained to read breast imaging. Beginning with screening mammography, this is performed in asymptomatic women, with the goal, as I already mentioned, of early identification of breast cancer in an individual woman. The screening mammogram only finds any potential abnormalities. We don't characterize on a screening mammogram. We just want to sort of be dichotomous. Is this totally normal or is there anything that bothers me on this image? And if there's something that bothers us, we bring the patient back for further imaging. A typical two-dimensional screening mammography contains four standard views a medial lateral oblique, or an MLO, of each breast. And as the word oblique suggests, in this image, the breast is obtained is imaged at approximately 45 degrees. And a craniocaudal, or CC, view of each breast, where the breast is compressed top down. Let's look at some pictures. This woman is undergoing an MLO view of the breast. You can see she's sort of at an angle. Schematically, this is what it looks like. The breast is being compressed at approximately 45 degrees, and that angle produces a mammogram that looks like this. We get one of each breast, so these are a patient's MLO views of her left breast and her right breast. On mammography, the fat of the breast, which is normal, looks black or dark gray, as we see here or down here. Normal breast tissue, what's called fibroglandular tissue, is white. So these are areas of fibroglandular breast tissue. And we as the breast imagers review this whole image for any potential abnormality. The other view we get looks very different. This is the craniocaudal view. And you can see the woman is positioned with the breast uh, compressed from the top of the breast towards the floor. 
Schematically, again, if she's being compressed from the top down, we get images that look like this. One of each breast, so we have a left and a right CC view. And with these CC views and the MLO views, we're able to assess all of the breast tissue. I mentioned that normal breast tissue, fibroglandular tissue is what it's called, and analogies of what it should look like are things that are sort of soft, like cotton balls or cumulus clouds. That's what the breast tissue should look like on a mammogram. And here's a demonstration of why I use cumulus clouds, because that's what normal breast tissue looks like, sort of soft and fluffy. Here's a patient's uh, screening view of her left breast. You can see one image is labeled LMLO, that stands for left MLO, and LCC is the left CC. And most of this tissue is that sort of soft, fluffy appearance, except back here, where we have a very different appearance, very angular, sort of looks like a sunburst. That's not normal fibroglandular tissue. That's what breast cancer can look like. So now that we've seen what normal breast tissue looks like, we can dis discuss the topic of mammographic density that you may have heard of. Mammographic density is the amount of fibroglandular tissue present on a mammogram. And the reason you may have heard of this is because this has recently become a topic of legislation. It's already been a number of years. Back in April 2013, the state of California passed legislation requiring facilities that perform mammography to notify women if they have dense breast tissue. Why would they do that? So let's look at this a little deeper. We mentioned already that the fibroglandular tissue is white on a mammogram, and the fat is shades of gray or black. Cancer, in all its mammographic manifestations, is white. And so there's the rub, there's the challenge. Finding a white abnormality on a white background can be very difficult or impossible. Schematically, if you have a very dense white breast, you can imagine that even a small cancer could be hidden in there. Even though it's present, it is unable to be detected. And that is a concept called masking. And we believe that is the most important implication of breast density, is that it can mask a breast cancer. The other implication of density is that it does increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. But that increase is only minor. But both of these issues, masking and cancer risk, are why the patient is notified if she has dense breast tissue. So let's look at some of the variation in normal breasts. This breast, you can see, is mostly that fatty black and gray. There's not much of the white tissue, so we call this almost entirely fatty. This breast has more of that white tissue. We call that scattered fibroglandular densities. This breast has even more of the white tissue, and it's sort of more confluent white, heterogeneously dense. And these breasts are very, very white, very dense, and so called extremely dense. And it is these top two categories of heterogeneously dense and extremely dense that fall under the legislation. If a woman has a breast density that is heterogeneous or extremely dense, they are notified by the facility. And when they are notified, what are they supposed to do with that information? We were very lucky to be part of a very important group that dealt with this issue in 2013 and published the consensus paper on the issue. And the most important take-home message for the average woman, if she has dense breasts, was to be vigilant with annual mammography to get the test done. And if you have dense breasts, in addition to just getting an annual mammogram, you can consider tomosynthesis. Tomosynthesis is the newest technology in breast imaging. It is otherwise known as 3D mammography, and we offer it here at UCSF. 
tomosynthesis, instead of a single mammographic image, as I've been showing you so far, is when we obtain multiple mammographic images taken in an arc over the breast. And that helps us deal with what is probably the most difficult part of reading a mammogram, because it's a three-dimensional structure, and we get a single two-dimensional image of it. So tissues can superimpose and make it appear that there's an abnormality that's not really there, or they can hide a real abnormality. So 3D mammography helps us deal with this. It's sort of like peeling off the layers of an onion one at a time and looking at each layer individually. So unlike the prior mammograms I've showed you that was a single image, this woman had 42 slices in her tomogram. I won't show you all of them, but if we just scroll through, you can sort of imagine that we're going through piece by piece, we're going through the breast tissue looking for any abnormalities. Diagnostic mammography is performed in women who have a symptom. So perhaps they feel or their doctor feels a palpable lump or maybe they have discharge from the nipple. Another very common reason to have a diagnostic mammogram is when something, a potential abnormality, is noted on a screening mammogram. We just mentioned that a screening mammogram is simply to find a potential abnormality. It's the diagnostic mammogram that will help us understand that abnormality. So the goal of diagnostic mammography is first of all to confirm if an abnormality is present and then to characterize it. And we use specialized techniques to characterize these abnormalities. An example of one of these techniques is called spot compression magnification views. And as the name suggests, here we're focusing on the spot or the region of interest. We're not interested in the whole breast anymore. We want to focus in on the area of concern. So here's a spot compression magnification view. And you can see we're not looking at the whole breast. We're just looking at a very small region. But we're focusing in on that region because in this case there's a mass and that is a small breast cancer. Here's another set of spot compression magnification views. Again, not looking at the whole breast anymore. In this case, we were focused in on this area of what's called architectural distortion. If you look at the other areas, they kind of fit with that cumulus cloud or cotton ball appearance, but not within the circles. That's very angular, sort of tethered in appearance. And that's what we call distortion, and that is another potential appearance of breast cancer. One more spot compression magnification showing another problem we can see in mammography called calcifications. It looks like someone took some salt and sprinkled it on this mammogram. And calcifications are another potential uh, presentation of breast cancer on a mammogram. So that's screening and diagnostic mammography. Moving on to breast ultrasound, which we use every day in breast imaging, some of the cause, common reasons we perform ultrasound, first of all, to further evaluate a mammographic finding like we've just seen. We use ultrasound as a first-line test in young women who present with a palpable mass, a mass they can feel. And breast ultrasound is also a very elegant and simple way to do breast biopsies. Here are some lesions, some abnormalities seen on ultrasound, and ultrasound allows us to sometimes reassure a woman she has nothing to worry about. So this is a very common thing that's found in the breast. It's just a cyst. It's just a ball of water. And women all the time, especially young women, will come in and very worried that they feel something, and we can reassure them. If we see something like this, they have nothing to worry about. This is benign. Here's another benign mass. This is a solid mass. It's not water like a cyst, but is very benign, very sharply circumscribed, sort of looks like an egg til tilted onto its side. 
compare those images with something that looks like this. Very different. This sort of looks like a pine tree, vertically oriented, if you will, very angular in appearance, and that's what breast cancer looks like on an ultrasound. Here's another vertically oriented mass. It has this angular margin, again, very concerning. And this is what this patient looked like. And I just wanted to show you this slide to remind you that although the vast majority of patients with breast cancer are women, this is a disease that also affects men. So we do see men in our clinic as well. Breast ultrasound in, uh, ultrasound, in addition to being very helpful in the breast, is very helpful in the armpit or the axilla. And when a woman has a breast cancer, we often go into the armpit to see if any abnormal lymph nodes are present. This is what a normal lymph node looks like. It sort of looks like a little kidney bean. It has a peripheral dark rim and a central white area. So that's normal. This is what an abnormal lymph node looks like. You can see the dark rim has sort of taken over this whole lymph node, and the poor little white center has been pushed off to the side. So if this woman had a breast cancer on that side, we would be concerned that there might be breast cancer cells in that lymph node, and we would want to sample it. With our remaining time, I want to touch on the evidence and the issues surrounding screening mammography. Nowadays, we're very focused on the idea of evidence-based medicine, practicing based on research. And there have been over eight randomized control trials. Those are the most rigorous scientific trials out there. And eight of them have been done. Now, they were done some time ago, but eight of them have been done looking at the impact of screening mammography. And when we look at those results and we combine them, the sort of overall answer is that screening mammography is beneficial. And that's very important data. But that's data that shows us that in a scientific trial it works. What's also very important is to know when you put this test in the population, people living their lives, does it make a difference for them? And that's what, what service screening studies are. They look at a population before screening mammography and after screening mammography. So it, assess the, it assesses the real-world efficacy of this test. And looking at service screening studies and very recent uh, studies, they show a very strong mortality reduction, around 40% mortality reduction in populations that have implemented screening mammography. Very recent data out of Canada looking at their provinces that have implemented screening mammography programs. Overall, again, a mortality reduction by 40%, so hugely impactful changes. So with that data, you would think, we know what to do, but there are multiple and differing guidelines. So the American College of Radiology, what we follow, recommends annual screening beginning at age 40. I sort of think of this like the Nike uh, guideline, just do it. Just get the test and get it every year. A differing guideline is the USPSTF, the United States Preventative Services Task Force. They came out with guidelines in 2009, reiterated them basically in 2016 with very different suggestions. They recommended selective screening for the youngest screening age group, 40 to 49. And we don't have time to get into this in too much detail, but that recommendation worried us. And so we did a review of our data, 25 years of data at UCSF. And we found that in this young age group, the vast majority of women with breast cancer had no risk factors. So this kind of selective screening uh, really concerns us. The USPSTF also recommended starting mammography at age 50, screening every two years from 50 to 74, and they noted that there was insufficient evidence to continue screening after age 74. 
So those were their basic recommendations. When you go into their text, they did acknowledge that screening mammography saves lives, what we've been saying, but they really emphasized the harms of screening mammography. Bless you. I and breast imagers in general don't love the use of the word harms. This is any test, any medical intervention has risks and benefits, and it's important to know those. But to emphasize the harms is probably not where we would go. So I'm going to call those harms, but maybe you want to call them risks, so I'll put that up there too. So one of the harms that the USPSTF emphasized was the idea of a false positive. A false positive is a finding that turns out to be nothing or turns out to be benign after additional testing, and that results in a lot of patient anxiety during that period and inconvenience. But the vast majority of patients who have additional testing have nothing more than a few extra pictures, and that's the end of it. A small number need a six-month follow-up of extra pictures, and a very small number actually need to go on to do a biopsy. So false positives are not um, very impactful in terms of leading to unnecessary biopsies. One of our gurus in breast imaging, Dr. Dan Copan, says this. He says, screening anxiety is not equal to death from breast cancer. And a lot of breast imagers sort of take this to heart that it's, it's bothersome to us that a death from breast cancer could somehow be comparable to anxiety from having an extra test. Absolutely, it's anxiety-provoking. But is that somehow equivalent or comparable to a life-saving test? And not only do we as the breast imagers feel that way, there's data to show that the American female population feels the same way. This is a study that assessed the attitudes and knowledge of American women who don't have cancer, general population, how they feel about this issue of false positives. And these women were very aware and very tolerant of this issue. They understood that it could happen. Even those women who had had a false positive, it did not seem to bother them. And almost two-thirds of women said they wouldn't let the issue of false positives affect their screening decisions. Another issue that is listed as a harm of screening mammography is the concept of overdiagnosis. This is the detection of a breast cancer that would not otherwise have surfaced in a woman's lifetime. It wouldn't have threatened her life. So basically, it's finding a cancer that wouldn't have killed the patient. There are varying estimates on how much overdiagnosis occurs, but we believe that the estimates are quite low, less than 10%. Either way, whatever your value is, and again, we believe it to be low, this is a theoretical problem because if we can't decipher on imaging which cancers are going to go on and threaten a woman's life and which will not, which will be indolent, until we can sort those out at UCSF, we're going to try and find all breast cancers. The other thing to note, and we'll hear more about really tremendous treatment options, that the personalized treatment that happens now at UCSF will really minimize any overdiagnosis that occurs. One more harm to think about is the issue of radiation-induced malignancy. And that's fair. Mammography has radiation. Lots of medical tests do. We need to be cognizant of it. But to put that in in, uh, context, a two-view mammogram, a screening mammogram, has approximately the same radiation of two months of normal background or a transatlantic flight. So we definitely need to be cognizant of radiation exposure, but it's sort of a mammogram is the same as flying to London. So that's sort of the degree of radiation you're being exposed to. So with those harms emphasized, these are the USPSTF guidelines. 
The American Cancer Society recently came out, and they kind of came somewhere in the middle between the American College of Radiology and the USPSTF. They said age 40 to 44, a woman should have the sort of choice to choose if she wants to begin. 45 to 54, a woman should undergo annual mammography. And over 54 uh, can either switch to biennial mammography or continue annual mammography. So with all these differing guidelines, what should the average risk woman do? And I, I agree with all of these groups who are focusing on informed decision-making by individual patients. I think that's true. But I just wouldn't focus on the harms as the important piece of information. Yes, we need to know the risks and benefits of everything we do. But I would really want to focus on this, that if we consider that if all women who are currently pre-screening age, 30 to 39, if they all had annual screening mammography for the most of their life, 40 to 48, an estimated 100,000 more lives would be saved than if the USPSTF recommendations were followed. This chart shows the same, just comparing the three different guidelines and showing that the American College of Radiology guidelines save almost 40,000 more lives than the ACS's guidelines and over 100,000 more lives than the USPSTF guidelines. And so with that, I think it's important to remember what an important disease breast cancer is, how much it impacts our female population. Screening mammography aims to save lives by finding breast cancer when it is early and most treatable. And bringing us back to tonight's topic, to optimize early detection of breast cancer, UCSF Breast Imaging recommends annual screening mammography beginning at age 40, as per the American College of Radiology, and this is why. Thank you very much. Thank you for allowing me to speak to you this evening. Um, I am so honored to have uh, Dr. Joe and Dr. Price as my colleagues. I can't tell you how much time I spend in breast imaging. I should basically have a clinic in, their, uh, in, the, in the reading room because I've spent a tremendous amount of my day just going over films and working out um, patient uh, care and treatment planning uh, with my wonderful colleagues. But I want to talk to you about a few things that we've innovated at UCSF in the Department of Surgery that we're very proud of. We've been first in a number of things, and so I just want to kind of walk you through a number of them. So we know personalized medicine is a balancing act, not to over-treat and not to under-treat. And so that has been our goal for the last 20 years at the breast surgery program at UCSF. So one of our first innovations is inductal carcinoma in situ. And you may have had some friends or relatives um, who've had this diagnosis. It's basically a cancer cell that's within the ducts of the breast but have not penetrated outside of the basement membrane. And since the cancer cell is contained within the duct, it cannot access veins, arteries, and lymphatic vessels and metastasize. And since it cannot metastasize, by definition, it's not technically cancer. So you'll hear the terms introductal cancer, non-invasive cancer, uh, non-infiltrating cancer, state zero cancer, and precancer. All of those terms mean ductal carcinoma in situ. So currently, DCIS is treated with surgery, either a lumpectomy that we call breast conservation um, that's usually then followed up with radiation, or a mastectomy. And some patients also will go on hormonal therapy to prevent a recurrence. And this is the standard paradigm, how uh, 
the evolution of a normal cell to a cancer cell, that it goes from a normal cell to an atypical cell to carcinoma in situ. Again, that's a cancer cell that's contained within the ducts to stage one breast cancer, to stage two breast cancer, to detect a mold metastasis and cancer death. And the theory is that, that you intervene anywhere in these stages before you get to detectable metastasis, the cancer can be cured. But we know that cancer is not one disease. So this was a study um, that looked at women diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. This is the Sears data, uh, data that's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute that looked at women in the U.S. diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ from 1975 to 2012. And with improvements in breast imaging, for example, when I did my residency back in the Stone Ages, we never saw ductal carcinoma in situ. The breast imaging just was not sophisticated enough to identify ductal carcinoma in situ. And now we have excellent breast imaging. And so the incidence of, if you look at the chart on the left, this is the incidence of ductal carcinoma in situ. If you uh, look at the middle line, that's for all ages. And you can see that there was a steady increase in the incidence of ductal carcinoma in situ from 1975 to 2012. But when you look at the other uh, chart on the right-hand side, that's the incidence of invasive cancer. And again, looking at the middle uh, line, for all ages, there's not a concomitant increased incidence of, ductal, of invasive cancer. So the theory is that if we're intervening with all this ductal carcinoma in situ now, where now it makes up about 40% of all cancers, where before it was only 4% of cancer, you would expect that the incidence of invasive cancer would drop along with the increased diagnosis of ductal carcinoma in situ. So there was another study that looked at women who actually had surgery for their ductal carcinoma in situ, and the theory holds. Overall, when they looked at all grades of ductal carcinoma in situ, there was no significant improvement in breast cancer-related deaths compared to women who had surgery versus women who had no surgery. So that brings us to our first USA, uh, UCSF innovation that I wanted to talk about. So all... One size does not fit all. So we do not have to treat all ductal carcinoma in situ the same. They all don't need surgery. And that's a trial that was opened. Uh, it was spearheaded by Dr. Laura Esserman, who formed the Athena Breast Health uh, Network. And it's where we strung together all of the five UCs, uh, medical centers, UC San Diego, UC, um, UCLA, uh, UC Irvine, um, UC um, Davis, and our own home institution. Uh, we're the principal investigators where there is a test that's called an Oncotype DS score that will tell you just exactly how aggressive that DCIS is. And it's graded to be low, intermediate, or high. And so our trial is that we will register these patients based on their DCIS score, and they can be, they, under the patient's choice, they can either go into an observational program or they can go to surgery. And hopefully, at the end of the day, we can change the terminology of using ductal carcinoma in situ, because it sounds very scary when you hear the word carcinoma, to turn it into atypical uh, ductal uh, uh, neoplasm. So these are the personalized treatment options that a woman can choose if she's diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. They can undergo active surveillance, and that's when we have them come in every six months for a clinical breast examination and a mammogram. That can also include a breast MRI if it's indicated. Uh, we can add hormonal therapy like tamoxifen, which we know will decrease their risk um, of recurrence by 50%. 
or they can undergo lumpectomy with no radiation. And again, with plus or minus hormonal therapy, they can have the lumpectomy plus radiation therapy, plus or minus hormonal therapy, or mastectomy, again, plus or minus uh, hormonal therapy. So there's personal, eight personalized treatment programs for women based on their, D, on their um, oncotype DCIS, DCIS score. And so based, again, on their score, they can be stratified to low risk, which we would recommend for treatment options one, two, and three, which is basically observation, plus or minus hormonal therapy. If they're intermediate, we want to change that terminology to ductal neoplasm, take out the word carcinoma, because these cancers, these ductal carcinoma and site two subtypes most likely will not go on to become an invasive cancer. And they can be recommended for treatment options three, four, five, and six, which can include surgery and plus minus radiation, plus minus uh, hormonal therapy, and if they are high, high-risk cancers, high-risk ductal carcinoma in situ with, a, with an approximately 20% chance of developing an invasive breast cancer in 20 years, we're going to recommend surgical management for those patients, and it would either be lumpectomy and radiotherapy or mastectomy. So that's an ongoing registry that we have now. We're hoping to change the paradigm of how ductal carcinoma in situ is managed uh, in this country. And I have to tell you, we have women flying in from all over the country to participate in this registry. It's been fabulous. So let's talk a little about, about breast surgery. I'm actually a surgical oncologist, so I'm specifically trained to take care of cancer. But you know, you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Our goal at UCSF is to move the ball down the road. As one of my medical um, oncology colleagues says, is that we don't follow the standards, we set the standards. So I want to kind of just walk you through the old and then talk to you about the new. So the breast surgery standardly that's done in this country um, for breast cancer is breast conservation, that's a lumpectomy, also known as a partial mastectomy. So in your reading, if you see partial mastectomy, just know that that means the same thing as lumpectomy. Or a mastectomy where the entire breast is removed, and there's two, uh, two types of mastectomy that are standardly done around the country is a simple mastectomy with no reconstruction or a skin-sparing mastectomy where the nipple is sacrificed and the breast is reconstructed either with an implant or using the patient's own tissue. We call that autologous tissue. And the procedure that we developed at UCSF is a total skin-sparing mastectomy, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And the other uh, big innovation in breast surgery in the old days, back again when I was doing my training, we would remove all of the lymph nodes under the arm as part of the cancer surgery. And women had the risk up to a 40% risk of getting the very severe lymphedema, you know, the elephant-type arm. Um, and so the sentinel lymph node was a game changer. That's when we only remove one or two lymph nodes under the arm rather than all of the lymph nodes. And we're just looking for the lymph node that's actually communicating with the cancer. That's the sentinel node. So we don't have to remove all of the lymph nodes anymore. We just remove a couple. And the risk of lymphedema is almost non-existent. So this is a Halstead radical mastectomy. This was the standard of care for women undergoing breast cancer surgery dating from uh, 1892 up until 1980s. This was the standard of care where the entire breast was removed, all of the skin on the chest wall, the underlying muscle, and all of the lymph nodes in the armpit with this resultant deformity. 
So you can see the chest wall is severely deformed, um, including the armpit. The risk of lymphedema is almost 100%. And this is when you would see the giant elephantitis arms associated with this, uh, with this procedure. Uh, there was also numbness um, and loss of mobility. And it also carried an increased risk because of the chronic swelling of the arm of developing a, a, uh, a sarcoma that was basically untreatable. So they had got a double whammy. Not only did they have this radical surgery, but they were also at risk of developing angiosarcoma and subsequently dying not from their breast cancer, but of the angiosarcoma. So the next evolution in breast surgery was a simple mastectomy. There was clearly clinical trials that compared uh, the radical mastectomy to the simple mastectomy, and they were equal. But it was really hard to get surgeons to change. Some of them are just stuck. But uh, because we spent a lot of time teaching community surgeons, UCSF helped move that ball down the road. And a simple mastectomy is just a simple removal of the breasts. The muscles are kept intact. And again, removal of the lymph nodes. And then the last um, uh, evolution of breast surgery was the simple lumpectomy or partial mastectomy, where you just make a very tiny, very cosmetic incision on the breast. The cancer is surgically excised. You remove one or two lymph nodes under the arm. So it's one small incision under the arm, one small incision on the breast. Takes about an hour, 90 minutes. Patients go home, recovery in just a couple of days compared to the old radical mastectomy where they would stay in the hospital for several weeks and then still had complications uh, related to such a deforming and defigurative um, surgery. One of the innovations that we did at UCSF in the late 90s, early 2000, is that we were early adapters to giving women chemotherapy before they went to surgery. And it proved two things. One is that we could downsize the size of the cancer and convert a patient from needing a mastectomy to having a lumpectomy. The second thing that came from our trials uh, in the early 2000s is that we confirmed that it's better to give a patient, if they need chemotherapy, to do it before they go to surgery, because then you can have an objective measurement of response, because the cancer will shrink if not disappear, and so you know that they're getting the right agent. Compared to taking a patient who you know need chemotherapy, you take them to surgery first, you remove the cancer surgically, and then you give them chemotherapy, and maybe it's the right agent, Maybe it's not. You have no way of measuring. That was another innovation that came from UCSF. So the next evolution in breast surgery, uh, sur uh, surgery uh, was the skin sparing mastectomy, again, where the nipple was sacrificed, and then the breast was reconstructed either with an implant or using the patient's own tissue. This is what the specimen looked like. You could remove all of the breast through that tiny little incision, but then that's what you go to school for 16 years to learn how to do. And then the nipple will be reconstructed at a later date. So that's the skin sparing mastectomy. So again, my colleagues at UCSF, we decided, you know, we can do better than this. This is good, but it's not great. And women deserve great. So my colleagues got together. In 2002, we all met uh, the breast surgeons, our plastic surgery uh, team, the radiation oncologists, and our nurses. And we came up with a protocol how we could do a total skin sparing mastectomy. And a total skin sparing mastectomy is where you do a mastectomy, but you don't remove any skin. 
And since the skin envelope is kept in completely intact, including the skin of the nipple, outwardly it looks like a normal breast. If a patient doesn't tell you they've had a mastectomy, you would never know from looking at them. As I tell my patients, if you want to go to the south of France and bear all, you can have at it. No one will know the difference. So we met monthly, and we aired our dirty linen. We discussed all of our complications so that we could learn from each other and learn how to improve the technique. So again, the entire skin envelope is preserved, including the skin of the nipple areolar complex. It has to follow oncologic principles, because remember, we're, we're cancer surgeons. So our risk of having a recurrence or not getting the cancer out has got to be the equivalent to doing a mastectomy. That was a very strong principle that we had to follow. And each patient had to be evaluated. We set up a protocol who could have this procedure and who was probably not a good candidate. And it was very high satisfaction from our patients. They were very happy with this. Again, we have people who started coming in from all over the country to have this procedure done. Not so much anymore because we've taught many surgeons across the country now how to do this procedure. This was our first paper that we published um, outlining our, our data and the protocol uh, regarding the total skin sparing mastectomy. And again, we were the first in the country to do this procedure and to publish. And this is what the incision looks like for the total skin sparing mastectomy. We make it at the bottom of the breast. That's called the inframammary fold. And all of the breast tissue is taken out through that incision, but we keep the skin envelope completely intact. The nipple is also cored out, so you're removing all of the breast tissue in the nipple, so we're not leaving any breast tissue behind. So this is following oncologic principles. And this is what it looks like when it's reconstructed. So we've come a long ways from the old radical Halstedian mastectomy to now the total skin sparing mastectomy. So then we had another problem we could tackle. Well, when we initially did this, we only did this in relatively small-breasted women. And we said, you know, large-breasted women deserve to have this procedure, too. So again, we put on our thinking caps and got back together and said, how can we tackle this problem? Because, you know, women with large breasts, they like to preserve their skin and nipple as well. But the problem with large breasts doing this procedure is that it's really hard to get the upper breast out through that lower incision. Because there's so much skin to preserve, there was increased risk that the nipple and areolar complex would not uh, survive with the skin because of inadequate blood supply. And they also had an increased risk of infection and implant loss, just because it was such a large volume of, uh, of skin that we were leaving behind. So we solved this problem as well. We uh, turned it into a three-stage operation where the first operation is the lumpectomy or partial mastectomy with a breast reduction. You just make the breast smaller so that you're not dealing with so much skin. And then we put in a temporary implant that's called a tissue expander to allow six months for the skin to get used to its new blood supply. Now there's a much smaller breast. And then after the six-month wait, uh, we take the patient back and do the total skin sparing mastectomy. So we've even now solved the problem of how to deal with large uh, totic breasts. So another innovation that happened um, at UCSF with my breast imaging colleagues that we work hand in glove is same-day imaging uh, clinic, or we call it SDA. And it's a collaborative clinic with breast surgeons, um, the nurse practitioner, the breast radiologist, to resolve a clinical problem in one clinic visit. I'm sure some of you um, uh, have had a mammogram went in for your screening mammogram, it was red abnormal, you had to wait two to three weeks to go back for your workup, and then another two to three weeks if you needed a biopsy. But we try and accomplish all of this in one clinic visit. 
So these are the clinical problems that we try to tackle at SDA. If you have an abnormal mammogram, um, abnormal ultrasound of the breast or the armpit, or what we call the axilla, an abnormal breast MRI, a breast mass or breast pain, breast cancer, and we also use it for surgical planning. And this is a, a photograph of Dr. Joe and myself uh, planning how to surgically excise a patient's multi, what we call multifocal breast cancer. She had multiple cancers in one breast, and to do breast conservation, I need to have wires placed. In the older days, I'm going to talk to you about our new innovation regarding the wires. But in the older days, we would place wires in the breast to find these lesions. And, and so Dr. Joe and I work closely on this to decide the best location to put the wires. And that way, I can determine where's the best place to make the, the best and cosmetic, most cosmetic incision. So we spend a lot of time together. So. This is the algorithm. A patient comes in with an abnormal breast imaging, a breast mass, or breast cancer. At the same-day clinic, they'll have a, a mammogram or an ultrasound if it's indicated. They may have already had an MRI, and they'll also get a physical examination. And we will have three uh, resolutions. We'll either have the problem resolved, and they can return a routine screen or their routine follow-up. If they need a biopsy, they can have it done while they're there during that clinic, or they can proceed to surgery if that's what's recommended. If they have an abnormal MRI, unfortunately that is not um, amenable to doing uh, MRI-guided biopsy during SDA clinic, so they will usually come one or two days later for the MRI-guided biopsy. And again, we'll either have resolution of the problem and proceed to surgery. But 90% of the time, we can resolve that problem within one clinic visit. So the next innovation, I'm getting so many innovations that UCSF, I don't know where to stop. <laughs> So the next uh, accomplishment we had at um, UCSF was intraoperative radiation, so-called IRRT. We know that from multiple studies, this is six studies that looked at uh, cancer recurrences after lumpectomy, and 91% of the time they would occur in the same quadrant of the original cancer. But standard care was external beam radiation therapy where the entire breast is radiated. But why do you need to radiate the entire breast if most of the recurrences are in the quadrant that the cancer originally occurred in? So, and the radiation therapy um, may also expose um, uh, incidental tissues like heart and lung or chest wall and ribs. Uh, and it also takes three to six weeks to get external beam radiation as part of the standard of care with the lumpectomy. So we did an international study, um, our group and um, a group from Germany and Australia. We looked at giving single-dose radiation therapy in the operating room. So this is the intrabeam that's rolled into the room, and the lumpectomy is done. And then you introduce the applicator right at the lumpectomy so that you can make sure it's a good fit because you know it's open and the surgeon can conform the breast tissue around the applicator to make sure that there's a nice seal. The radiation therapy is delivered, usually in about 20 minutes. The applicator is removed, the lumpectomy site is closed, and the patient goes home. She's done. She's had her lumpectomy and radiation in one fell swoop. Rather than the complicated confirmation of the source to the target, to do external beam radiation therapy, the, um, the radiation oncologists have got to use a complicated uh, configuration for tangential beams to hit 
the breast in a variety of angles so that it conforms to the cavity, where we can actually conform the applicator to the cavity uh, in a much more accurate method because we, are, uh, we can mold the tissue around the applicator much easier. And again, this is just a comparison, six weeks to 20 minutes. And this is just the data um, that came from our studies from the three institutions, and it looked at breast cancer-related deaths. Target was the name of the trial compared to external beam radiation therapy, and you can see the breast cancer-related deaths were, uh, were comparable. Uh, and actually, there was a slight survival advantage when you looked at uh, non-breast cancer-related deaths using intrabeam radiation, using uh, intraoperative radiation compared to external beam radiation therapy. So we're also very proud of this study as well. And uh, again, multiple institutions have taken up this protocol, including our colleagues, CPMC. They came over to see how it's done. <laughs> but again, we're very proud of this innovation. And it's also very cost-effective when you compare the cost of uh, intrabeam, intraoperative radiation therapy compared to um, external beam radiation. So the last thing I want to discuss is uh, our most recent innovation, and I think um, Dr. Joe is going to touch on it a little bit, is Centimax seed localization for non-palpable lesions uh, for surgical excisions. So these are either um, lesions that are suspicious for cancer or they're cancer, but we can only see them on mammogram or ultrasound, but I can't feel them. So that means I can't feel them in the operating room either. So I need a method to identify the location so that I can surgically excise it. And you saw in that previous film we would place wires. Let me go a little bit forward. So this was an example of what would be a non-palpable cancer. It's pretty small. And so there is no way that I'm going to be able to feel that in the clinic or in the operating room. So in order to find this old school, we would put wires in to spear the cancer. I would make an incision where the wire is coming out, and the wire will lead me to the cancer. So you can imagine how traumatic that must be for a woman. The day of, It had to be done the day of surgery because we cannot put them in the day before because they may migrate. So on the day of your having breast surgery, you have to go to radiology first, and they have to, I won't say ram, but... <laughs> but they have to place a wire into your breast. And so you have a wire sticking out of your breast like a porcupine, and now you're going to be wheeled through the hospital in your little gown with a wire sticking out of your breast on your way to surgery. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? So we um, were the first to um, trial uh, the Centimax seed. What it is is a ferrous iron seed that can be placed inside the cancer any time before the patient goes to surgery, days, weeks ahead of surgery. And so it's placed in radiology. And then, so it's placed radiology. This is the little C. And then in the operating room, I have a probe that works like a magnet. And I scan over the breast, and where the little mag seed is, it's made of iron. The probe will lead me right to it. So we put the probe on the skin, and that's how I decide where to make my incision. The incision is made. We put the probe inside the breast to again localize the seed. The seed is localized. The area is surgically excised. And I x-ray it to confirm that we have the seed. And that's much nicer. Patients love this much more than the wires. So we were the first, again, to adopt mag seed, and now it's becoming uh, used universally across the country. This is my baby boy. So we thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Ewing. We're going to just switch over to another presentation. Um, so I think theme of the evening, you're hearing a lot of firsts at UCSF, so I'm going to share some with you as well. So I get to end the, um, the session tonight with my talk, which will focus on advanced breast imaging techniques. And it will focus primarily on MRI techniques and also sharing with you some of the new exciting research that's happening in radiology. And as Dr. Ewing mentioned, we all work very closely together, and we really view our clinics as kind of one extended clinic. Uh, it's just as she will consult with me about her patients. If I have a patient with an abnormality and I sense that she could use a breast surgical consultation, I walk over to them and say, hey, can you see one of my patients? And we pass patients back and forth all the time. So... With that, uh, we're going to move now to precision imaging again and talk about advanced breast techniques. Message is that UCS Radiology provides high-quality advanced imaging to optimize early detection. Dr. Price very eloquently explained how we do that with mammography and ultrasound. I'm going to talk about doing that with breast MRI and also treatment monitoring of breast cancer. So in terms of what we're going to cover, uh, personalized imaging with MRI, I'm going to touch on just a few applications. There are many applications of breast MRI, but I'm going to focus on some of the cancer applications, which is screening for high risk, evaluating local extent of disease, and monitoring response to therapy. And then also talking about advanced methods for biopsy and pre-surgical localization of tumors, just to expound a little bit more on what Dr. Ewing had mentioned. And then just to close on some new imaging technology we have, and that is dedicated breast PET. So very exciting. So starting with personalized imaging with breast MRI, just to introduce you all to how it's performed. Most MRI is actually performed with the patient lying on her back. But when we do breast MRI, we have the patient on her stomach. We want the breast to not be distorted. So we actually have her on her stomach in prone position. And we also put the patient feet first entry. So instead of going in with her head first, we do feet first. And that has a couple of advantages. It reduces claustrophobia. We can better monitor the patient. And also when we do procedures, the patient is closer to us and easier to access. We do need to give contrast if we're looking for cancer. If it's an implant evaluation, we actually don't need contrast for those kinds of MRIs. But if it is a cancer evaluation, we do need the gadolinium contrast, and that's because the cancer has vascularity that lights up with the gadolinium. And then there is a dedicated device called a coil. This is thought of as a radio receiver antenna. You need the coil in MRI. This is to maximize your signal and to get good spatial resolution. What that translates to is a prettier picture, a better picture, so that we can make a more accurate diagnosis. Now, this is a translational research success story and another first. So UCSF uses the Sentinel breast coil. And the reason we like this coil, it has an open design. It's easy for us to put a patient in it. It is more comfortable than most coils. It also has movable elements. What this means is I can customize per patient. So this is part of that personalized imaging. It's just very practical. Women come in all different sizes, as Dr. Ewing showed us. So not one size fits all. So this coil, we can adjust the detectors up and down and side to side to make sure that we have the best fit. And the best fit means the best imaging. This is something that 
was brought to us through research, actually. Dr. Nola Hilton is one of our MR research scientists, and she bought this coil initially through her research funds. She had collaborations with um, folks in Canada who built it. We were the first in the United States to have this coil, and we actually got to help them develop it. And it increased our throughput for our clinical imaging, MRI and MR breast biopsy, so much so that it became the routine. So it is currently our routine coil for all our clinical work, but it did start out as a research coil. In fact, I joke with Dr. Hilton that once she let us get a hand, our hands on it, she couldn't have it back anymore. So we had to get a second one. So we have two of them now. This is a good time to mention all scans are not created equal or performed equally. So an MRI is an MRI, not true. At UCSF, we recognize the importance of excellent image quality. And I think Dr. Ewing can attest to that when we look at the range of image quality that's available out there. It's important to know what you're doing and what you're looking for. We have expertise available to troubleshoot imaging problems and handle the difficult cases. We kind of specialize in that. If it's complicated, then it tends to come to us. If it were easy, you know, anyone can do it. But if it's hard, that's where we um, come in. So this is an example of breast MRI technique, and this is a non-diagnostic exam. The reason that is, is the breast tissue here, the fatty part looks white, and the tissue looks black. This is because the patient had some uh, shoulder surgery. She had a little bit of metal in her shoulder, and that causes artifacts. So in the magnetic resonance environment, anything that's magnetic or can be ferromagnetic is a problem. And as Dr. Price had shown you, those fluffy white clouds, you're looking for white on white. Well, in MRI, we do something similar. We want to make the fat dark, and we want to keep the tissue more light. And the gadolinium contrast shows up as white. So we're, again, trying to find whiteness. When we have the white fat and the black tissue, we exactly have the opposite, and we can't see cancer there. And this image could easily be passed off as, well, we had some artifact, and it's normal study. Well, look at what happens after you optimize. This is the what I call the diagnostic image. You guys see a white spot there, hopefully. Just in case, I put a big arrow on it. After image optimization, guess what? That's a cancer. You would have missed that completely if you didn't optimize your image. So successful optimization requires direct radiologist uh, intervention and expertise. And in fact, this is a case I was called to the scanner for, and we were able to fix it right away, and the patient doesn't have to come back. She gets it done right then and there. just takes a couple minutes. So UCSF breast MRI, we pride ourselves on superb image quality. We also have access to research sequences, new developments that are not available elsewhere. As Dr. Ewing said, we like to set the standard. We like to set the standard of care, and we also want to bring new stuff to the clinic. And it's fine with me if our colleagues in the Bay Area adopt it. And I actually feel good. I think I'm raising the quality of imaging. But it starts with us. We have the expertise, and I think that's what the reputation is based on. So in terms of screening, we want to focus on the who's at risk. We heard earlier mammography is the mainstay of mammographic screening, breast cancer screening, early detection for all comers. But even though all women are at risk for breast cancer, there are some women who are at higher risk. You guys may remember Angelina Jolie, very famous actress, who came out a few years ago and said she was a BRCA1 carrier, and she actually underwent prophylactic mastectomy. Well, 
celebrity announcements are great. They help raise awareness, but it's important to remember, again, one size does not fit all. So patients need to get educated and seek medical advice. Make sure that they're doing what's right for them. Not everybody should get a double mastectomy just because they're afraid of getting breast cancer. That is certainly not the message we're trying to send. Um, this is a recent event we held, which uh, was sponsored by the Radiology Biomedical Imaging Department in conjunction with the Helen Diller Family Cancer Center. And this was a whole session devoted to considering BRCA genes and knowledge improves outcomes. That's definitely true. So we want to impart knowledge. We also want to make sure that we improve outcomes. Uh, some of the specific indicators of high risk, uh, certainly people who are genetic mutation carriers or if they're an untested first-degree relative of a mutation carrier. Not everybody wants to get tested. There's a lot of um, angst around that, and that's a whole uh, that's a whole talk in and of itself. But certainly these are patients who are at higher than average risk where we would want to do breast MRI screening. Additional uh, people who we think should get breast MRI screening is if they have very strong family history. If you have multiple family members, premenopausal cancer, young cancers, then um, you're, you probably need more than just mammography. And certainly patients who had chest radiation therapy, this is for treating usually another cancer at a young age, like a lymphoma. So they had what we call the mantle radiation. Your breasts are exposed to a large amount of radiation, and they are at risk of developing cancer. So mammography gives a very small amount of radiation. We don't think those patients are really truly at risk from a radiation-induced breast cancer, but people who were treated with radiation therapy, this is a much, much larger dose. Those patients are at risk. So those people are in uh, the green. I also want to note that all of these people should be getting breast MRI screening in addition to mammography. So the two tests go hand in hand. A second group, these people are also at higher than average risk, not quite as high as a genetic mutation carrier who are in the green. So they're in the yellow just to separate them out as another group. But these people also can consider MRI screening. They have a strong family history or they have LCIS or atypia. So they've had a prior biopsy showing atypical cells, some risk markers. And people who've had a personal history of breast cancer. Again, we found in studies that in this group, the yield of MRI is actually equivalent to the yield in the BRCA carriers. So MRI is very effective. Now, we mentioned earlier in this session, people with dense breasts do also have an increased risk for cancer, but that is a minor risk factor. So just dense breasts alone, are not. Um, that's not currently one of our recommendations for getting MRI screening. So remember that MRI screening is adjunctive to mammography at UCSF, our approach is to alternate them. So we do some type of screening test every six months. The patients often are seeing their clinician as well in the high-risk clinic, and so we alternate MRI and mammography. Now, moving on to another cancer indication, one is evaluating extent of disease. This is a patient who already has cancer, so we are leaving early detection. Now we've detected a cancer. How do we use MRI? Well, MRI can be very valuable to see things that we can't see well at mammography, such as chest wall structures. Uh, if there's many sites of disease, especially if the tissue's kind of dense, we may not be able to see multifocal disease or pick it up as well. MRI is much more sensitive. Lymph nodes. Um, we can see some axillary lymph nodes at mammography, but MRI as a 3D technique will lay out the entire uh, chain for you. And sometimes there's unsuspected cancer in the other breast, often, again, because it's masked by dense tissue, so MRI may pick that up. 
So here's an example where MRI is um, showing more disease. And it, we know from studies, again, that compared to mammography, MRI is more accurate. So the mammogram shows calcifications, which are marked actually by those two biopsy clips marked by the orange arrows. MRI, in contrast, shows a mass and also extensive abnormal enhancement that we call NME, or non-mass enhancement. So there's a very extensive area of abnormality that happens to surround those two clips. So we know we're in the same place. It's just that MR is showing you a lot more. The mammogram showed you the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Um, this is another patient who unfortunately had fairly extensive disease. We see that she has multiple sites of tumor in the breast and also axillary adenopathy shown in the circle. And these are very large lymph nodes that are quite deep. And again, we probably would see part of that on a mammogram. And if we targeted our ultrasound probe, we could find them. But in MR, we can see the relationship and also what the relationship is of the nodes to the pectoral muscle. This is another patient who has an abnormal uh, lymph node. In this case, these nodes are not in the armpit. They're actually in the sternal area or chest wall area, and they're called internal mammary nodes. These are also important to identify. You can see it on the correlative PET-CT as well because you want to treat these. You don't want to leave these alone. And that's the cancer that correlates with. Now, Dr. Ewing mentioned that we give neoadjuvant or chemotherapy treatment up front to downsize the size of tumor before we surgically uh, excise. And MRI is wonderful for monitoring response in this setting. So here is a patient example where at baseline we get an MRI, we see a substantially large-sized tumor, and as the patient is being treated over time, we can monitor and see if the treatment is working. And here, nicely, you see that the treatment is working because the tumor is shrinking. And by the third time, it's barely perceptible, and by the time we're ready for surgery, what we call the pre-surgical MR, there's nothing left. And this is what we call a complete response by imaging. The patient still goes on to surgery to ensure that pathologically the tissue truly is free of tumor, but the MR can give you a good sense of how the patient's doing. And that way, if it's not working, the surgeons and oncologists know earlier. So MRI is actually quite a good marker for monitoring disease and also predicting survival. So this is another uh, UCSF-led effort. This is a multi-center trial of therapy and using MRI, but Dr. Hilton was able to show that a marker called functional tumor volume can not only predict treatment response, but also recurrence-free survival in these patients. So this is where imaging can give you insight into the future. So talking about MRI leads me to advanced methods for biopsy. Uh, Dr. Price talked about ultrasound. We also can do biopsy under MRI. And this is how it's done. It's similar to the imaging. The patient has to be on her stomach in a prone position. But instead of the closed-off coil we use for imaging, we have to have an open one. And that's for obvious reasons. We need to be able to access the breast tissue. We usually have some type of grid compression device, and that's to help us localize the correct square or spot to go into. And then there is a special biopsy device that's designed for use in the MR environment that is safe. This is how it looks in real life. If you were at the console looking at the image, again, this is all directed and driven by the radiologist. There's a um, usually some type of fiducial system to mark our boundaries, and then we know where to go with our target. And the patient does all this as an outpatient. This is a procedure that takes less than an hour. She comes in. She gets local numbing medicine. When she's done, she leaves. 
We can also localize with wires under breast MRI. These are situations where the patient may not be able to get a biopsy and uh, or just needs to go to surgery. If a cancer is visible at mammography or marked by what we call a biopsy clip, then we actually don't need to go through the expense of doing an MR localization. We can actually localize under mammography. So Dr. Ewing mentioned wire localization. This is, these days, we consider old school. But many places, this is actually still the standard. And it's a very acceptable standard. So I don't want you all to think that wire shouldn't be used. But uh, the concept is that you have to mark a lesion that the surgeon cannot feel. And this way, we ensure that the tumor is excised and um, ends up in the bucket, so to speak. But we can also localize without the wire. And again, um, Dr. Ewing mentioned the inducible magnetic seed localization, called MagSeed for short. This is what it looks like. It's just a five millimeter seed. It's basically the size of a large biopsy clip. And we can place this up to 30 days in advance in the patient. She doesn't have to come to us hungry the morning of her surgery. She can get this done even a couple weeks before when she's seeing the surgeon for her pre-op visit. So it's a great way to be very patient-centered and decouple the radiology visit from the surgical operation. Uh, And then this is the specimen radiograph, again, showing that the seed is uh, out, as is the target biopsy clip. So just a couple minutes of um, research, if you indulge me. I want to share with you some very exciting new imaging technology that we have, and this is for breast cancer patients. It's called dedicated breast PET. I think people are familiar with the concept of PET imaging, positron emission tomography. We have whole body PET, or PET-CT, at UCSF. We also are very proud to be only one of two places in the country that offer dedicated breast PET. This is what the unit looks like. It's actually just a um, table-sized unit that fits in a regular small room. And the um, patient lays on her stomach again, and the breasts hang through an opening where the detectors are. The reason we like dedicated breast pet over whole body pet is we can do higher resolution imaging. Remember, with breast cancer, we want to see things in very fine detail. And we can also use a lower dose of radiation, lower dose of isotope. So with a smaller dose and better resolution, it's like a win-win. What's not to like? We can therefore do functional imaging. So with MR, we have a little bit of functional imaging because we're looking at contrast. But with We are looking at specific targets. So usually people image with glucose analogs, so they're looking at metabolism. However, we also now can image the estrogen receptor with fluoroestrodiol. So these new tracers are very exciting because they allow us to do very targeted imaging and maybe one day even targeted therapy. This is uh, early results of comparing a breast MRI with the dedicated mammy pet, breast pet, and we have on top baseline, we see a very large tumor. There were actually two tumors. One was triple negative and one was hormone positive. And then down below is after just three cycles of treatment. And we can see that the dedicated breast pet was more sensitive to the early treatment response, and it accurately uh, predicted the subsequent response when we took the patient to surgery. So we think this is very exciting, and it is a current trial we're doing. So this is not routine clinical care. I'm currently talking about research, but we're very excited to be one of the first to do this. 
so that brings me to the end of the lecture outline, and I hope that we've shared with you all our passion for breast imaging and breast cancer treatment. Um, we would be happy to take any questions, just leaving you with the message again. We, we do this well, we think, and uh, thank you very much. So, okay. Thank you. At this point, I would like to call my co-presenters up to the microphone with me. I'm going to be moderating our question and answer session. If anyone has a question, just raise your hand and ask away. Go, go ahead, sir. Uh, doctor, you mentioned your recent BRCA event. At that event, you had a, a mobile mammoth parked outside. This was tremendously exciting to me to see not only the person operating them, leading the tours, but the response of the people coming out of the event and going on and seeing it. And uh, this looks like a really high value asset in getting people started, what Dr. Price mentioned, an early awareness of getting screened and how relatively easy it can be. The, the innovations you have just with the referral process also impressed me. But could, for people that don't know about it, could you tell us a little bit about your, your hopes for that? Okay, thank you. So just to paraphrase the question, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, someone who attended our recent BRCA event noted that we did bring our Avon mobile mammography van out to Mission Bay and parked it out front. So this is indeed a uh, great resource that we have. We use this for our underserved population, our county population, where it may not be easy for them to get to the clinic, and this is a way to reduce that um, activation energy, so to speak, to get a test when you feel fine. So we we do use it as an outreach effort, and we're proud that we have gradually increased the volume of screeners that we can do with the van. I should mention, though, that that van is actually quite old, and it is on its last legs. We are currently fundraising for a new van, and we're hoping to have a van with tomosynthesis. So if anyone is interested, please come see me after. But that van is a great resource, and we, um, we would love to maintain that program. I think it, it is a way to get the screening, I guess, clinic to the patient. So thank you for that. Um, any other questions? Oh, oh, and just in terms of operations, the van has to be booked in advance, but we run clinics all through Chinatown, the Tenderloin, a lot of uh, places. You know, whoever wants the van to come, we can set that up, and we send a, obviously, um, a driver, you know, commercial licensed driver drives the van, and then we have a mammographic technologist that goes on the van, and everything is digital and transmitted digitally. Okay, any other questions? Oh, okay, uh, so uh, in the red, and then we'll come up front. Go ahead. Years ago, I read an article, it wasn't that many years ago, but it, it was called Cancer Incorporated. And the gist of the article was we spend all this money on the cure, but not the cost. And I know there is research on you know, what is the cost, but still there seems to be more on the cure, which is very expensive, than trying to prevent so if I am understanding the question correctly, the question is about if we have found the cause for breast cancer and can we prevent it. And unfortunately, we still don't have a true cure for cancer either. So perhaps Dr. Ewing, our surgeon, can do you have comments there well, or Dr. Well, actually, Price? Yeah. Oh, and please come to the microphone so they can record us. Increasingly, it's becoming a two-pronged approach. It's not just um, diagnosis and treatment, but it's also prevention. And in fact, we have uh, one of our trials that's looking at um, how we could intervene early 
One is by identifying women who are at risk and who may not know that they're at risk so that we can intervene early. The other, we are, there's a series of nutritional studies that's looked at uh, that it may be a deficit in a certain nutrient like niacin or vitamin C, you know, that if we can identify that nutrient that someone needs to prevent a cancer in their early childhood, maybe perhaps we can intervene and prevent a cancer from ever forming. And there's also a lot of targeted and genetic therapy that's going on. And I'm hoping before I retire that we'll be able to uh, repair genes that we know have a mutation that would increase risk for breast cancer. So it is looking at it for prevention as well as diagnosis and treatment. The diet is what I was I've heard that sugar, alcohol, or... Well, you know... one of the things, most cancers are um, hormonally sensitive or hormonally positive, and um, estrogen, a lot of it comes from your peripheral body fat, so the higher the obesity, the higher the risk, and so sugar and alcohol are all tied into that. But there are certain nutrients. You've noticed that kale has become extremely popular. Anytime we start making kale juice, you know we've gone too far. But it's, but it's the antioxidants. Uh, that's our uh, that's in kale and dark green leafy vegetables and certain fruits and vegetables. Um, so we know that uh, antioxidants has a huge impact on cancer prevention. Okay. Yes, go ahead. I just wanted to make sure I understood correctly. Um, do most breast cancers start with? Ductal carcinoma? No, they don't. In situ? No, they don't. That's so the question point. is, yeah, do most cancers start with ductal carcinoma in situ? No, they don't. They don't. In this, this follow, what makes, what, what type of cancer is a one-hour treatment, or like you said, or one that's more complicated? So the question is, what type of cancer is a one-hour treatment? Perhaps, are you talking about breast surgery? Like, what type of surgery can be done in an hour versus a more extensive surgery? Well, a lumpectomy is pretty simple. It usually takes about a 45 minutes to an hour to do a lumpectomy, whereas a mastectomy, especially if we're doing reconstruction, can be a few hours. So it's just the complexity of the surgery that determines how much time we're in the operating room. So, so a lumpectomy can be done within a few hours? Usually less than an hour to do a lumpectomy. So the question is, is there any way to detect lobular cancer before it forms a mass? Would you like to? Sure. We'll let Dr. Price answer. From an imaging point of view, the um, very educated question, the issue with lobular cancer is that it is very subtle in its growth pattern. It's sort of classically single file, all lined up in a nice, neat row. And that neat nature of it is not what we expect. Cancer is disorganized, so we look for things that are chaotic and different than the rest of the tissue. And so lobular can be very sneaky, uh, as, as this esteemed question is suggesting. So things that we can, there are early, early signs on a mammogram before a full mass forms. And that is something, you know, we take a lot of pride in all our uh, techniques. We have a very special way that we look at mammograms comparing our current study to multiple old studies, not just last year's. We're pulling up 
today I pulled up a case where I pulled up every study from today back to 2004. So all of those studies to look for very, very small changes to find these tiny changes. And we find these very small things before they become a full-blown mass or you know, a very aggressive cancer. So there are ways to find them. Sometimes. Sometimes it is simply non-detectable on mammogram or ultrasound or even clinical exam, and it becomes found for by whatever reason, and then you start working it up. You get an MRI, for example, and you realize how much disease there is. Lobular is a very, very difficult disease to work with. Dr. Ewing can probably speak to the clinical and surgical implications. Oh, if there's any. Just put in oh, a sure. plug. So the reason I was happy Dr. Price uh, answered that question is when she joined UCSF early on, she actually published a paper called The Developing Asymmetry, a Perceptual Challenge. Sorry if I paraphrase that wrong. But that is one of those subtle signs, and uh, that is something that we are known for, the way that we hang our studies and read them. The, the whole purpose is we, we design it such that we can pick up subtle findings, and certainly we prefer to catch cancer before it's a true mass. That's the whole point of early detection, so we are trying to catch it before um, the surgeon can feel anything, and so hence we need the magnetic seed localization. And yes, certainly you want sharp-eyed radiologists, and this is why we read in very dark rooms and we sequester ourselves and do not allow interruptions so we don't even answer the phone when we're screening. Yes. I just wanted to add, this, yeah. is, this is why it's so important that the, the radiologist who is interpreting your mammogram has a level of expertise because I can tell you... I, Again, plugging my own group. I can't tell you how many times I go over a film with my radiology colleagues, and they found something that the outside radiologist completely missed. So it also has to do with the level of expertise. Okay. Uh, let's start in the back, and then we'll come up in front. Yes. Sort of on a similar subject, last week in medical school, they were talking about artificial intelligence being able to see patterns maybe earlier than a radiologist can. And what occurred to me is that most women have a whole set of mammograms over a 20-year period where you might be able to see patterns way before anything develops. Is there any kind of study maybe going on about looking at one woman's uh, mammograms over a period of time? So the question uh, reflects artificial intelligence and how you would apply that, for example, in a screening mammography setting, and you know, is there a study looking at all mammograms over time? So we do that uh, currently. We look at all mammograms available to us, and that's why we stress to patients it's important to give us your entire record, not just last year's mammogram. So the human does that already, but certainly um, artificial intelligence, I think, can be a valuable tool to help aid us. It's not going to eliminate the need for a radio to kind of uh, frame the findings of the machine, but it can certainly be a labor-saving device. And if the machine can look at all 20 priors for me, great, even better. We're not quite at that computing level yet, but we do have active research. In fact, one of the current residents now fellows um, that I'm mentoring is doing exactly that. He is looking at 
um, many, many thousands of screening mammograms and trying to see if he can design an algorithm. This is uh, Dr. Hari Trivedi. To see if he can design an algorithm to help sort of pre-screen the screening batch. Uh, so it's a work in progress. I think our computing power, as it gets better and better, may be able to handle more and more data, but there's kind of a limit of what the computers can handle and how much data you have to feed it. And at the end of the day, you still need uh, some expertise to tell the computer what's cancer, what's not, and um, when it's going down the wrong path. But certainly this is an avenue of research, and it's uh, certainly an area where you know, one of the obvious applications would be in these large screening settings. So thank you. Uh, we have a question in front. Yes, go ahead. How would you know if you have a competent person to read it? For instance, I go to CPMC, the Breast Cancer Center there, and I just assume everybody knows what they're doing. But how would I know that the person that read my record wasn't competent or not? Yes, suggestions are Sure. So the question was, how would an individual know if they were having their imaging read by an expert? That's a very good question. From a breast imaging point of view, I think there's two things you can do. Um, You can find out the training of those who are reading breast imaging. So did they have specialized training beyond their radiology? All of us are radiologists by training. We've done residency in radiology. But then many people and everyone at UCSF has gone on to do extra training only in breast imaging to really, really focus our skills. So you can find out if the people at any institution are subspecialty trained in breast imaging. The other thing you can ask about is um, through the American College of Radiology, the body that accredits all radiology centers, um, you can become what's called a COE, a center of excellence. And that implies that you've met very high standards of the quality of your machinery that provides the imaging because, you know, those go hand in hand. You can have a fabulous radiologist with a tremendous eye, but if the images are of poor quality, there's nothing the radiologist can do to make that better, and vice versa. You can have a fabulous image. If the person is not an expert in reading it, you might not get the outcome you want. So you need a place that has the accreditation level of excellence with the radiologist's experts in their field. Yes, go ahead. So, taking that one step further, can women from anywhere come to you with their radiographs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and have you give them a consultation as to what your impressions are of these images? So the question is, can women from anywhere uh, come see us for a consultation? Let's just take that very broadly. Certainly any woman who has a breast concern can see us in, through our same-day clinic uh, program. So you're not seeing just the radiologist, because you don't want to just treat the mammogram in isolation. It's a patient. And our patients will be seen by the surgeon and the radiologist in conjunction. So yes, they can make an appointment with us. The other question, which is um, perhaps also there, is can we just read outside mammograms? Uh, Unfortunately, we don't quite have capacity to do that, and we don't really want to do that, because as Dr. Price mentioned, there's two parts to this story. One is 
who obtained the image and what quality and under what conditions, and then who's reading it. So we view it as a package deal. So just for me to look at some isolated images is not very telling. And this, again, is why we do this in conjunction with the surgeon. When we have the patient, we need to know her history. We need to know her story. And then Dr. Ewing and I will talk about what is the most appropriate imaging to do if she needs imaging. So not all patients even need the mammogram. And we don't want to do unnecessary tests unless it's warranted. So that's why we do this as a joint program, and we work side by side that way. Sure thing. Oh, and I think we are at time. Uh, do we have time for one more? Okay, we take one last question. Go ahead. Uh, at the uh, prostate cancer lecture, uh, they used the population studies to show that, uh, I guess, cancer is over 2% for, uh, So that, that was a recommendation not to get the PSA screen. But in that same chart, they said it was comparable to breast cancer, which was only 2%. So why... It's only 2% of, of the population have breast cancer deaths. So I think the question uh, relates to pro- a prostate cancer session where the number 2% came up. But in, um, in terms of breast cancer incidence, we expect one. In, and in terms of breast cancer deaths, I don't know that we know that it's 2% of the population. Um, I don't know if Dr. Dies Ewing has dies from breast cancer, maybe. Uh, uh, but 50,000 die a year. So yeah. So, so we, we think that there are actually substantial deaths from breast cancer every year, and that's why we are promoting early detection. I mean, both detection early plus treatment, tailoring the treatment, they, they, all, they all are interlinked and go hand in hand. Our population studies, and Dr. Price showed those studies nicely, when you look at population-based studies of mammographic screening, you're reducing breast cancer mortality by about 40%. So that is a significant enough number that we think it is valuable to do mammographic screening. Again, until one day there's a true cure, you mean once there's a cure, then I guess the screening part is not as important. But we're not there yet. And we certainly can't predict yet who will get breast cancer. The best we can do is tell you which subgroups we know are at higher risk. But we still can't even predict among those people who's going to get cancer. So, yeah. And we certainly can't predict who will die from cancer. So that's, that's where we are. Hence, the research and the, um, all the innovations, and this is, this is our passion. This is what we all do. This is why we are here rather than out in private practice just reading scans. We're working hard to stratify risk. We're trying. We're, yeah, we're not there yet, but we are trying hard to get you all to that level that these questions are driving at. Okay, so I think with that, I'll close the session. Thank you to my wonderful colleagues, uh, Dr. Ewing, Dr. Price, and Dr. Jack. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.